We have been in a series in the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, for about three months now. And we've got a little ways to go, but we're, we're now at the point where things are really starting to get exciting for us as Christians. And um, our focus is going to shift a little bit today because last week, if you, if you were here, which a lot of you weren't, we, we got hammered with a snowstorm last week. So I just want to bring you up to speed for just a minute. Last week we focused on Romans chapter 7, which is a really unique chapter in the Bible and a really unique chapter in the book of Romans. What Romans chapter 7 gives us is a picture of a frustrated Christian who is trying to relate to God through the law. They are, he, Paul, in fact, speaks in the first person and he tells us that when it comes down to it, I, I love God's law and I want to please God. And I want to do what's right, but I just can't. I just don't find the strength to do what God wants me to do most of the time. And it makes me, it, it leaves me frustrated and defeated. And there's this inner tension and inner battle going on in the Apostle Paul and in most Christians. We've all experienced this. We know the right thing to do, and yet we can't seem to do it. Or we know what we shouldn't do, and we can't seem to stop doing that. You know? That's just a, a, Unfortunately, it's kind of a normal experience for Christians. And at the same time, it's not the normal Christian life. It's not the way that we're supposed to be living our Christian life. And yet even someone as great as the Apostle Paul, someone who we tend to idolize. You know, this guy wrote half the New Testament. He was a, a, a very ambitious, zealous person, follower of Christ. He, he, he led many, many people, throngs of people to Jesus Christ. He planted churches all over the Roman Empire. And yet even he was susceptible to seasons of frustration and, and good days and bad days as a Christian. Days where he, he had a vision in his mind of who he should be and how he should live and he couldn't measure up to it. And, and he was frustrated by that. And so what we get in Romans 7 is not a picture of the victorious Christian life, but more or less a realistic picture of what it's like to be a Christian who's still trying to please God in our own strength. We're still, in, in many ways, relating to God through the law. Here, and, and you know how we do that, right? We say, okay, now that I have a relationship with God, um, being a Christian is basically about doing this and not doing this. <laughs> That's what it comes down to, really. That's kind of how we relate to God sometimes. I guess being a Christian is just about doing these things, you know, going to church, worshiping, singing, giving, being generous, praying, spending time, reading God's word, and then not doing these other things. And anytime we reduce Christianity to a list of do's and don'ts, we're missing the mark. All we're going to end up with is a very frustrated, defeated attitude. I wonder if, I bet you all, you've all experienced that. And maybe some of you are stuck in it right now. And so what we do is we, we try to be a good person, but we fail. We feel guilty. We feel condemned. Sometimes we, it gets so bad that we think our life was better before we knew God. Because, you know, then at least we could do what we wanted with, with a clear conscience. And we didn't always feel guilty all the time. Um, and, and sin, what it does is it keeps us focused. Sin keeps us focused on God's law and says, hey, you... You, now that you're a Christian, you've got to do these things. You've got to obey God. And if you don't, he's, going to be ha- he's not going to be happy with you. He's going to get you. That's what sin does. It takes something good, the law, and it turns it against us. 
And, and, it, and it leaves us in a place where we're not able to live the way we really want to. And we ask, and then we end up asking, well, who's the real me? Is the real me this person that wants to do good and wants to please God and sometimes does the right thing? Or is the real me the person who's always falling short and feeling defeated and guilty and condemned? It's almost like we have this split personality and we're left wondering, which is the real me? And I'm here to tell you today that the real you is the one that wants to do the right thing. It's the one that has the power to do the right thing and actually does the right thing. That's the real you. There's only one you. And we're going to see that this morning as we turn our attention to Romans 8. But before we do, I want to just read with you, uh, with you the last few verses of Romans chapter 7. This is sort of the picture we're left with in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. This is what the Apostle Paul says. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. There's the frustration. Who will deliver me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now that is not the normal Christian life. That is not a picture of the normal Christian life. But it is the life that many Christians has cho- have chosen to live because they're still trying on a daily basis to please God in their own strength. And that's how they end up. Frustrated and defeated. And now we turn our attention, we're going to start today and over the next few weeks, to what is commonly referred to as the greatest chapter in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that, but Romans 8 is a beloved chapter of the Bible, and I think you're going to start to see why this morning. And here's what we read in Romans 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit." For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The big idea this morning, the thing I really want you to know as we walk through this text together is this. That indwelling sin is no match for the Spirit of God who lives in you. Indwelling sin, which we all have, is no match for the Spirit of God who dwells in you. And there are three things that we get 
from our relationship with God in Christ Jesus, from our union with Christ Jesus. There's three things that we're going to look at today. There's three things that position us to live the victorious Christian life. We get a new identity, we get a new way of life, and we get a new power. And those are the three things that we are going to look at this morning. So when you, when you consider what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, which is maybe the greatest verse in the greatest chapter of the Bible, where Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you understand what Paul's saying? Because he just got done saying in Romans chapter 7 that you have an indwelling sin problem. You have indwelling sin. You have this old sinful nature that is still alive and kicking in your heart that is constantly at war with the Holy Spirit who dwells in you so that there's this inner conflict and so that the flesh, your old nature, is trying to get you to do what you don't want to do and the Holy Spirit is empowering you to live according to your new nature in Christ, right? So the bottom line is you have these two natures at war which means that you are sinful and not condemned. You are a sinful person who is not under condemnation. That is what Paul is saying. Is that amazing or what? How can Paul say that? How can Paul say that I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, even after you come to faith in Christ, you have indwelling sin, you still make lots of poor choices. Sometimes Christians are capable of doing terrible things. Breaking all kinds of laws and commandments. And yet, Paul says with authority and total clarity, there is no condemnation for you. There is no condemnation. How is this possible? He says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's possible because of our union with Christ. That phrase, in Christ Jesus, is a phrase that is one of Paul's favorite phrases. He uses it 164 times in the New Testament. And we've talked about it a lot in this series because it comes up in Romans quite a few times. It's a horticultural term. We've said that it means, it it pictures the engrafting of a branch that was broken off an old root or an old source and placed, placed into a new life source, a new root, and hammered down and tied together until it grows, they grow into one. That's what the the phrase pictures, our union with Christ. It means that his righteousness becomes our righteousness. It means that our sin was put on him. It means, uh, one commentator, Douglas Moo, said that Christ became what we are so that we could become what Christ is. So that his righteousness, his very real, actual righteousness, his obedience to the law, his entire life, those 33 years that Jesus lived on the earth, when he loved people and showed compassion and healed people and gave himself to people who were far from God, where he obeyed God's law at every point, that life has been transferred to your account. His life has become our life. His actual life has become our life so that when God looks at us, he sees the life of Christ and he judges us based on that life. Another way to describe this is our union with Christ is if you think of a, a house, <clears throat> think of a house in the middle of a country that, and, and all of a sudden there is this massive storm, this raging storm, maybe even a tornado, and it's pounding on the house, winds, rain, hail, pounding on this house. And anyone outside of the house 
Their life is in danger. But you find refuge in the house. And the storm represents God's judgment on sin. It represents God's wrath on sin. The house represents Jesus. And as long as you are in the house, you are safe from the storm of God's wrath. You are comfortable in the house. You, are, you have nothing to fear because that house is going to stand firm. It's built on a firm foundation. It's not going to fall. And as long as you are in that house, you will escape the wrath of the storm. And that is, that is sort of what happens in our union with Christ. Because we are united to Christ, we will pass through God's judgment unscathed. We, have, we do not have to fear God's judgment anymore. That's what it means. Outside of the house, there's devastation. Inside, there is peace and comfort. And Jesus Christ on the cross endured the storm of God's judgment so we wouldn't have to. That's what union with Christ means. And now our identity has changed. We've been given this new identity. We have a new identity. Our old identity was a sinner. We were a sinner. Alienated from God, under the law, under the wrath of God, held accountable to God. But our new identity is different. Our new identity, you know what God calls us now? Saints. That's what Paul called us at the beginning of the letter. It's the first thing he says about us. To all the saints who are at Rome. That's how he starts every letter. We are saints. We're not, God doesn't call us sinners anymore. Even though he knows we're sinful, we're still stuck in this body of sin until Jesus completes our redemption, but we're saints in God's eyes. We're saints in God's eyes. We used to be sinners, now we're saints. How can Paul say that there's no condemnation for us? And here's how. If you look at verse 3 and 4 again of Romans chapter uh, 8. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So what Paul's saying is that we will pass through the judgment because God has condemned Jesus. We are not under condemnation. There's no more, there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ because God has condemned sin in Jesus who came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now notice he doesn't say he came in sinful flesh because Jesus was not sinful. Jesus did not commit any sin. But he was fully human. He came as close to us as possible without sinning. Jesus was fully human and fully God so that he could represent God to us and so that he can represent us to God. That's what he's saying. The reason that there's no longer any condemnation for us is because God condemned his own son. He condemned sin, our sin, in the body of Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. He judged his son. He left his son on the cross in darkness for three hours. That's a picture of God's judgment. The judgment that we earned not Christ. And that's why we say that Christ is our substitute. And that is how it's possible for Paul to say, you are sinful and you are not condemned. And 
the phrase, now no, now no condemnation, might leave some of you wondering, well, does that mean that there will come a time when I can fall back under condemnation? It's a good question. But the way that Paul declares this status from God leaves no room for that. You need to know that. The negative language here indicates that condemnation is no longer possible for the person who's in Christ Jesus. It's been banished forever. Condemnation doesn't exist in your world. It can never come back because you've been transferred out from the realm of condemnation and into a new realm where there is no condemnation. It's a realm of life and peace in the Spirit. That is the new sphere that you and I live in if you belong to Christ. There is no more no, no condemnation ever again. It doesn't exist for us. It can't come back. And, and this will be more clear as we work our, work our way through chapter 8. The death and resurrection of Christ was final on your behalf. That's why he said it is finished. It can't be undone. Do you believe that, church? Do you live that way? Do you live your life as if there is now no condemnation for me? Do you live that way? Um, C.J. Mahaney wrote this great little book called The Cross-Centered Life, and he talks about this, this idea of no condemnation, and he, he, he asks some very good questions about our lives and how we relate to God, and I want to ask them to you. This is what he says. Number one, do you relate to God as if you were on a kind of permanent probation? Second question, when you come to worship, do you maintain a respectful distance from God as if he were a fascinating but ill-willed celebrity known for lashing out at his fans? When you read the Bible, does it reveal the boundless love of the Savior or merely intensify your guilt? Are you more aware of your sin than you are of God's grace? If you believe that there is therefore no condemnation for you, then your answer to all those questions should be no. No, 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 no. I am not condemned because God has already condemned Jesus in my place. And I'm free. I'm free. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd a British preacher, from the 20th century, he said this, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? You know what he's saying? He's saying, we oftentimes listen to our flesh, which accuses us before God, which beats us down. Or we listen to the enemy who uses the law to beat us down and say, you're not good enough for God. You'll never, you'll never change. You'll never measure up. That's how we listen to ourselves. But what he's saying is we need to talk to ourselves. And this is what we say to ourselves. You know what? You're right. I never will measure up. And you know what? I don't have to. Because Jesus Christ is my righteousness. He fulfilled the law on my behalf. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to preach Romans 8 to ourselves. And say, you know what? I don't need to listen to, to this. There is therefore now no condemnation for me, because I am in Christ. Jerry Bridges, in his uh, book, The Discipline of Grace, this is what he said, these statements by Paul, and he's referring to Romans 8 here, are objective truths. That is, they are true whether we grasp them or not. So often, however, we find it difficult to believe them. 
because of our frequent failures before God, we do feel under condemnation. We do not feel God is for us, but rather must surely be against us, and we do think he is bringing charges against us. At such times, we must preach the gospel to ourselves. We must review what God has declared to be true about our justification in Christ. You know what justification is? It's the positive way of saying there's no condemnation for you. That's what justification is. It means that we are, at the same time, God says two things about us. He says, you are not guilty. That's the no condemnation. And on the positive side, he says, you are righteous. You are righteous in my sight because you are one with my son. That's our status before God. That's what's true about us. That doesn't change. Your feelings change. You may feel condemned many times over. But God has already established the truth about you. He's already given you this new identity. He's given it to you. You've received it by faith if, you, if you're trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. There's no going back to your old self. It, your old self is dead according to God. And why is that important? Why do we need to know that we're not condemned? Because our identity comes under attack all the time. And there are two things that the enemy uses to attack our identity and to make us question our this whole condemnation thing. The first thing is suffering. When we suffer, when, when our lives start falling apart or we lose something precious to us or things do, do not go our way, or we struggle, or we have some pain or crisis in our life, the enemy uses that. He leverages our suffering to question our identity. And, and you know what we start to do? We start to ask God, God, what is going on? Are you angry with me? Why are you letting me go through this? If you love me, God, why would this be happening to me? Did I do something wrong? Are you punishing me? Maybe I am condemned. Maybe God does want me to fail. Maybe I've gone, maybe I've gone too far. That, those are the kinds of things that we can ask ourselves and ask God when we suffer. Right? But that's not what suffering is intended, intended to do. God introduces suffering in our life for the opposite reason. God uses suffering in our life to clarify who we are, to prove that we belong to Him, to prove His faithfulness to us, to prove His word to be true. That's the purpose of suffering. And yet the enemy will use it to make us question who we are. He does that. You, you know that. The other thing that we, that creates a sort of identity crisis for us is sin. When we sin, do you know what happens? We start to question whether or not we're condemned. Whether or not we really belong to God. Whether or not God really loves us or whether or not God likes us. And, and we have we, this phrase in Romans 8, um, what the, in one of those early verses there, it says that God has set us free from the law of sin and death. When, when Paul uses the word law there, he's talking about a principle. He's not talking about the Mosaic law. He's talking about this principle of sin and death. You know what that principle says? It says that when you sin, you're watering a seed. And that seed is going to grow 
And if you don't cut it off at the root, it's going to get bigger and bigger and and stronger and stronger. and And all it wants to do is master you and control you and destroy you. So every sin starts out small, but it never stays small. Sin never stands still. Sin has a life of its own, even in the believer. And if we don't cut that life off with the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, it'll continue to grow and continue to spread and it will bring death into your life. It will ruin your relationships. It'll ruin your attitude. It'll ruin your behavior. It'll ruin your words, your speech, the way you talk to people. Death is the end result of sin always. That's what the principle says. This principle is is laid out clearly in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. This is what uh, James said. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Sin always starts as a desire, in other words. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So that's how it works. That's why God, in, in, in Genesis chapter 4, God went to Cain. Cain and Abel, his brother, Cain's younger brother Abel, most of you have heard this story, they offered a sacrifice to God. God accepted Abel's sacrifice. He rejected Cain's sacrifice. Cain became jealous. And God intervened. God went to Cain. He said, Cain, be careful. If, you're, if you don't do what's right, sin will, ma- sin will master you. It will devour you. It's crouching at the door. It starts out as jealousy. Jealousy grows to bitterness. Bitterness becomes hatred. Hatred becomes murder. Cain did not heed God's warning, and he murdered his brother. And that's how sin works in our lives today. Same, same principle. And, and we, end up, we end up playing this, this daisy game with God. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. If I had a good day, he loves me. If I have a bad day, he loves me not. That's, that's daisy theology. That's what that is. That's not biblical. The Bible says there's no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. And when we sin, there's this principle at work that persuades us that we're not righteous, we're not powerful, we're not loved, we're not in Christ, we're a fake, we're a hypocrite, we're a liar, we're a pervert, we're a failure, whatever accusation fits the moment, sin is always working hard to convince us that we are condemned. And we're all stuck under this tyranny of sin and death until Christ comes in and introduces us to a new law, a new principle, a new power of the Spirit and life. And it sets us free from the power of sin and death. It sets us free from the law of sin and death. So we no longer have to be stuck in that cycle. And that way of always wondering, how does God really feel about me? We don't have to wonder. He's told us. There's no condemnation for you. I love you. It's not going to change because you have a bad day. It's not going to change because you have a bad week. It's not going to change because you've done a terrible thing. My grace is enough. And so the question I want to ask you is, is, Where is your confidence and assurance? Where are your confidence and assurance located? Is it in your performance? And how good of a, how good you're doing? How well you're doing? How obedient you're being? Or, are your confidence and assurance securely located 
in the words of God. In what God has already said, it's true about you. The second thing that we're given through our union with Christ is a new way of life. A new way of life. In verses 5 through 8, Paul says that those who live according to the flesh set their mind on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the things of the Spirit is life and peace. Life and peace. Our new way of life should be, de- should be defined by peace. Peace. Not fear. That's the old way. The old way of relating to God is fear. The new way of the Spirit is peace. Do you see the contrast? There's huge contrast here between our flesh and the Spirit and between how we relate to God. There's really only two ways to relate to God. One is through the law. Through fear. Leads to condemnation. The other is through the Spirit. Which leads to life and peace. That's what he's saying. So the question is, now that our identity has changed, now that we have this new identity where we are no longer under condemnation, how do we actually change? How does, how does our life change? How do we live as if there's no condemnation? Do we try harder? Do we become more focused? Do we start a self-salvation project? Can we just decide to change? Can we simply discipline ourselves to uh, enter into this new life? No. What he says is you have to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And, and the mind there, mind and heart are interchangeable in the New Testament. So he's not just saying the way you think, although that's a big part of it, you know, what you set your mind on, what, you, what dominates your thinking. That is a big part of it. But it's not just that. It's bending your will towards something. It's aligning your whole life towards something. The way you think, the way you feel, and the way you act, the things you do, those all have to be oriented to the things of the Spirit. And so here in, the, in these verses, Paul gives us a contrast. He's saying, we have the flesh, and the flesh represents all the weaknesses and helplessness of human nature. It represents our vulnerability to sin and temptation. It's all that attaches us to the world instead of God. He's not talking about our bodies when he uses this term flesh here. He's talking about our old nature. And specifically, now now we could of course say, okay, the flesh, that represents lust and greed and envy and um, all, you know, pride. All of those sins that we commit, you know, lying, cheating, stealing, I mean, we could go on and on and on. Those are all the things of the flesh, right? Yes. But remember chapter 7. Remember chapter 6. Remember, Paul is speaking to self-righteous people who think they're good with God. Most of the people he's writing to, they think they're good with God. They think that they're good enough for God to accept them. And that, my friends, is the problem. That is the flesh he's talking about. Paul is talking about relating to God based on your good works. He's talking about people who are stuck in the flesh, stuck in the performance cycle, stuck with this idea that as long as I do certain things and live a certain way, God has to accept me. As long as I go to church and serve and give and avoid the bad things and avoid the bad people and and I'm basically a good person, God will accept me. That's Life in the flesh, that's what leads to death. 
That's what he's after. The Spirit, on the other hand, is totally different. The Spirit represents all the power and help we have because of our union to Christ. Spirit, in the Old Testament, represented wind, a powerful wind. So what he's picturing here is is that before a person trusts in Jesus for forgiveness and a new life, they're at the mercy of their sinful nature, under the law of sin and death. They do whatever their sinful nature tells them to do. Even if they want to do good, they usually can't find the power to do it and they feel totally helpless and defeated. But when they encounter the risen Christ and turn to follow Him, a new power surges, surges into them like a rushing wind. And it totally changes them. It changes their orientation. It changes the things they think, the things they think about, the, the, the way they talk to people, the the way they live their life, they find this new power is at work in them to produce generosity, gentleness, patience, perseverance, kindness, resilience, peace, joy, love. All of these things are the fruit of this new power. And they begin living the normal victorious Christian life because a new power from outside of them has entered in, has broken through, has broken through their heart. And is now producing a new kind of life. So what the, the mind set on the Spirit, it describes the person who regularly preaches the gospel to themselves. It's the person who's constantly reorienting themselves to who they are in Christ, their new identity. That's the person set on the things of the Spirit. It, it, it describes what your heart is bent on, what your will is aimed at. And it includes the thoughts and affections that dominate your mind. So a good, a good way to ask, you know, what kind of person am I? Am I the kind of person that set my mind on the flesh or the kind of person who set my mind on the spirit? Is Ask yourself this. When I have nothing else to think about, what do I think about? When I have nothing else to do, what do I set my mind on? What, what are my dreams about? What are the things that, that I'm bent on? What dominates my thinking? That's the kind of thing, that's what he's after. And if you are setting your, th- your mind on the things of the Spirit, you will, you will be doting over Christ. You will be meditating on Christ and, and, and you will never get tired of it. You, you'll never arrive at the place where you can say, you know what, I get it. I, I understand grace. I understand the gospel. There, there's, now I gotta get on to the deeper things in life. No, uh, Being a Christian, setting your mind on the things of the Spirit is constantly meditating on the gospel and the riches of the gospel, what we have in the gospel, who we are in Christ, who God wants us to be. That's what he's after. What are you focused on? uh, About a week ago, I took one of my daughters on uh, this awesome date. (laughs) It's just so fun. We we went to this daddy-daughter dance at this really elegant uh, ballroom, and it it was just amazing. And I took one of my daughters... And we had an amazing time, and we danced a lot, and it was really fun, but it was really interesting. I I was thinking about this this last week. When we were dancing together, and and this happens to be, I have four daughters, and they're all different. This particular daughter happens to be really concerned, and she always has been really concerned about what other people think about her, what other people say about her, and how other people look at her. And I hate to say this, but she'll probably always struggle with that. 
And so when we're out on the dance floor, I'm just looking at her. I'm just focused on her. I'm just enjoying her, you know? I'm just having a, a blast. And she's looking at everybody else like she's, she can't look at me. Look at me. Hey, look at me. I'm telling her, just look at me because I know what she's doing. She's looking around to see like the other girls dancing and what the other girls are doing with their dads and am I dancing right? Do I look cool and all that stuff? And I'm just like, just look at me. And I can see that she's trapped. She's not even enjoying herself because she can't stop focusing on other people and comparing herself with other people. And I'm just like, just stop. Just let yourself, just, just seriously, just let that go. Look at me and let's enjoy this moment together. And you know, you know what she's doing? You know what that's a picture of? Okay? She is dancing. She was dancing to justify herself. She's looking at other people to justify herself. And I just wanted her to dance because she's justified. Do you get it? I wanted her just to dance because we're together. Because she knows I love her. I don't care how she looks. It doesn't matter how she looks. I just want her to look at me and enjoy this time, this time with her dad. That You know, we don't have that kind of time very often. And man, let's just, let's just enjoy each other. And that is how our relationship with God should be like. God has invited us to this dance, so to speak, where he's asking us to just focus on him and be free. And to stop comparing ourselves with other people and stop looking around and worrying about what other people say about us and stop looking for praise and approval from everybody else because God has justified us and approved us based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and now we are free to enjoy him in the dance. That's the dance we're called to. That's our life. Our life has been described in the Bible as a sort of dance with God. And it's a beautiful thing. So the question is, what dominates your thinking? What dominates your attention? So we've been, just to summarize, we've been given a new identity, which is no condemnation. That's our new identity. We've been given a new way of life, which is no bondage. We're, not, we're no longer bound to the law of sin and death. And lastly, we've been given a new power. We've been given this new power, we're told in verses 9 through 11, that because the Holy Spirit now dwells in us. Paul says about the people he's writing to, you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit if the Spirit of Christ lives in you, and Paul's assuming that he does. The Spirit of life, the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. What that means is that Christianity is not about right living, it's not about, it's not about being moral, it's not about doing good things, it's not about ethical behavior. It's about life in the Spirit. That is what Christianity is about. Power. John Donne, one of my favorite poets. In, in fact, when I was at UWM, I was in this uh, literature class, and there was, a, there was this uh, time early on in the class, this is like 15 years ago, where we, we were allowed to read a certain kind of poem um, from any genre to, in front of the class, and we got to share what it meant to us and why we loved it. And this is the poem I read. And um, I want to share it with you today. And this gets at, John Donne wants what we want. And he's wrestling with what we're wrestling with, okay? This is what he says. 
Batter my heart, three-person God, for you as but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, or throw me and bend. Your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new, I like a usurped town to another do. Labor to admit you, but oh to no end. Reason, your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but I am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you and prison me, for I except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chast except you ravish me. What John Dunn is crying out for is for God to send his spirit to set him free. For God's spirit to ravage him and break the chains of the old nature. That's what he wants. That's what we want. The power of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Christianity is about power. It's about power. So when you look at your life and measure it and examine it, how do you know? How can you know whether or not you belong to Christ? How can you know whether or not the Holy Spirit dwells within you? Would you say, oh, I don't do really bad things? And I'm a pretty good person. Those are the wrong measurements. According to this text, the measure is, if you can say, my life is a testimony of the power of God to produce radical change in a totally sinful person. That's the measure of whether or not the Spirit of God lives in you. Change. Change in your heart. How do we know that we have this kind of power this kind of power that is greater than the power of your indwelling sin? Listen, this is how we know. Because the same Holy Spirit who was active in the conception of Jesus Christ and the same Holy Spirit who enabled the young boy Jesus to grow in wisdom and stature in favor with men and other people, the same Holy Spirit who descended on Jesus right after he was baptized and led him into the wilderness to be tempted and confronted temptation with Holy Scripture. And delivered him from temptation. The same Holy Spirit who enabled Jesus to hear from God and do God's will. The same Holy Spirit who led Jesus to the cross. And the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit that lives in you. It's the same Holy Spirit. That's power. We have that power in us. So the question is, does the Spirit of God dwell in you? Does the Spirit of God dwell in you? There's this place in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus uh, was invited to a Pharisee's house to have a meal with him. And he sits down at, at, ta- at the table. He reclines at the table with this Pharisee and some other people. And this prostitute walks in. And everyone knew who she was. She walks in and she comes to Jesus. She approaches him. She has an, uh, a jar of very expensive perfume. It was probably the most expensive thing she owned. She broke it. She poured it over Jesus' feet. She was weeping. Her tears were falling on Jesus' feet. She washed his feet with her hair. And the, and, um, the Pharisee looked at Jesus and was like, Who is this Jesus 
how can this be a spiritual leader of God when he's allowing this prostitute to even come near him? And of course, the Pharisee had done nothing for Jesus. He didn't wash his feet, which was customary. And he, it was pretty rude, actually, to Jesus. And Jesus turned and looked at the woman. He said to the Pharisee, did you see this woman, what she did to me? Do you see her? She loves me. And you know why she loves me? Because she knows how sinful she is. And she knows how forgiven she is. That's the picture of someone who has the Holy Spirit in them. That is the picture of a person who is setting their minds on the things of the Spirit. It's someone who knows how utterly sinful they are, and at the same time, they know how utterly and totally forgiven they are. And the truth is about Christians, that Christians are the most deeply aware of their sin, and at the same time, we are the most deeply aware of who we are in Christ, that we are not condemned. So we, are, we should be the most humble and the most happy people on earth. Those tears that she was crying were not tears of sadness. They were tears of joy and gratitude. We know that about her. Those are the tears we need. Those are, that's how we should be relating to God. That's how we should be relating to God. With worship. That's worship. That was worship for her. She wasn't singing. She was just weeping, washing the feet of her Savior, serving him, just delighted to be in his presence. And Jesus did not turn her away. He didn't turn her away. He welcomed her. So what do I want you to know today? What what do I want you to know more than anything else? I want you to know you are not condemned. There is no condemnation for you anymore if you have trusted Jesus for forgiveness. And I want you to know that the Spirit of God lives in you and He is stronger than all of your indwelling sin. You have power to say no to sin. And if, and if you were to ask me, what do I want you to do? What does God want you to do with this? He wants you to say no to sin. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to be set apart. He wants you to fulfill the law. And how do you do that? By walking with the Spirit. By setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. By preaching the gospel to yourself. By remembering how sinful you are and how forgiven you are. That's how we do it. We focus on the things that God has said about us. The things that we know are true. And we, we, we anchor ourselves in that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. I thank you, God, for your word. I thank you for your spirit that is alive and well in your church today. I thank you, God, that you have forgiven us and that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that we can rejoice, God, and live this way of life that is free from the law of sin and death, that we can enjoy your presence and enjoy your power, and that when we fall and when we sin and when we make terrible decisions, when we grieve you, that we can confess, we can acknowledge our sin, we can claim your forgiveness and walk away and live a new kind of life with a new kind of attitude. We pray that you would give us the power to live that way this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
I have something really exciting to share with you this morning, and, and, and some of you may already know this, but did you know that today marks one year since we've been in this high school? We've been in this high school one year. February 9th of last year was our first meeting here at West Dallas Central. I remember we felt uh, like 75 people who were here early to set up and all that. We prayed and made a big circle out in the, in the foyer area, and, and we've been here a whole year now. And I think we should just give God a, a round of applause for what he's done. Since we've been in this building. Because being in this building is a lot of work. But we are blessed to be here. And it's amazing what God has done. It's amazing who God has brought here and who God has added to us as people and families who make up Cross Point Church. I am so excited that we've been here a year and we're still standing and we're still preaching the gospel here. And God is moving through us. God is moving to redeem people and families through the gospel. And he is going to continue to do that. I'm so excited for this next year too. And I want to tell you that on April 19th, which will be our one-year anniversary of our launch date, which was last Easter, we are going to have a big celebration here. And that is going to be our sort of our big day that we're pushing for, where we are going to invite tons of people and, and friends and family and neighbors and co-workers to celebrate all that God has done in the last year. And uh, it's going to be, an, I think, an awesome uh, event that Sunday, April 19th. And we're going to tell you a lot more about it. There's a lot of things we're going to do leading up to it. But I just wanted to put the date out there for you so that you keep it open. Please keep April 19th open so that you can be with us for this uh, that, that celebration. Worship team, keep that open, all right? We need you here. And um, I'm just so looking forward to that. So, and I'm so thankful for everything that God has done. And today, I just want to leave you with the grand benediction that Israel, God gave Israel. And this is the kind of uh, blessing that we live with in relationship to God today. This is how we should think about God and relate to God today as uh, New Covenant believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And this is our benediction. Would you bow your heads, please? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.